this evening, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to Titus, Titus chapter 2, our scripture reading for this evening. You'll find this on page 998 in the Pew Edition Bible before you. Titus 2, I'll read the entire chapter. Our text, however, will be verses 11 through 14. The Apostle Paul writes, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior." For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Here ends the reading of God's word. This word is the word of the Lord. Let us now ask for the Lord's blessing of illumination. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, as we sang just a moment moment ago, Father, we pray that you would create in us a hunger and a thirst for the truth, a desire to hear the word of life with ears of faith and with hearts that are receptive to the transforming power of your spirit. Humble us, we pray, before the word, and then also lift us up to the glory that awaits us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, let me begin this evening by mentioning a couple of well-known criticisms of the Christian church. The Christian church, in the first case, more broadly, and then secondly, the criticism that is often leveled against Reformed churches. There is the criticism, you may be aware of it, that says Christianity seems obsessed 
with two extremes of time. They seem to be obsessed with things that happened long ago in the time of Jesus, his ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection. And then they also seem to be obsessed with the distant future. They talk and they sing and their worship services are all about awaiting Jesus Christ's return, being in the presence of God in heaven and the joys of heaven. But the criticism is that with all that concern about the past and the present and the future, there seems to be little concern about the impact of the Christian faith in the present. And maybe you've heard people say about a person who's obsessed in that way that while he may be heavenly-minded, he's not of any earthly use, that kind of Christian. And then more specifically, in terms of our own context of the Reformed faith, one of the major criticisms leveled against the reformers of the Protestant Reformation was that if you teach a doctrine of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to create a, a group of people calling themselves Christians who have no desire, no, no drive, no passion for living a life of good works. I mean, after all, if we teach that salvation is partly of good works and partly of grace, we encourage people to live godly lives. But if you teach it as all of grace, well, forget it then. The Apostle Paul already dealt with that issue in Romans chapter 6, remember? He said, shall we keep on sinning that grace may abound? I mean, does it make us careless? The Catechism asks us that question, remember? Does this grace of Jesus Christ make you careless? Now, we know what the Catechism says, but in reality, what has been the practice among God's people in the Reformed Church? Are they, to use the language of our text tonight, are they zealous, are they on fire for good works? Or is their attitude that of, well, we're all saved by grace anyway. I've heard people even say, God's a forgiving God. It's his job to forgive. So why should I be so concerned about trifling matters like my sin or sinful behavior, sinful attitudes and the like? The burden of my message tonight is to show you from the word of God that the grace of God does something. It is active. It is powerful. It brings transformation in the lives of God's people. That's the burden of the Apostle Paul to young Titus. Teach, preach, shepherd God's people in such a way that they understand that the grace of God brings about radical change in people's lives. And we could talk about that in a couple of different ways. If you want to take notes, there's the past element about what has happened the present in terms of what we're called to do now, and then thirdly, what we're anticipating. Or you could say in another way that Paul wants to focus upon three verbal ideas. The grace of God enables us to do certain things that we could not do in our own strength. The grace of God teaches us certain things, both negative and positive. It teaches us to say no to certain things and to say yes in the affirmative to others, and that grace of God is that which anticipates the future, the coming of Jesus Christ. And by anticipating, 
the question is always then, what kind of people ought we to be right now? How does it change us? That's really what he's getting at with Titus. Now, just a word about the background. If you're not familiar with this letter to Titus, it's one of the so-called pastoral epistles, and it's called the pastoral epistle because it deals primarily with the work of, of shepherding God's people. What will that look like? In particular here, it's Paul addressing young Titus, his associate, his assistant in the faith and ministry. They had traveled at one time to the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. They had witnessed concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was a following by the work of the Holy Spirit. But Paul couldn't stay there. He could not remain there. He had other places to go to. And you can imagine. You can imagine if you started up a congregation, a young congregation with people who had never before heard the gospel. You can imagine how concerned you would be about their spiritual care, their spiritual nurture. Are they being taught the word faithfully? Are they conducting their lives in a way that is consistent with the gospel message? Are there people seeking to infiltrate their assembly, their, their congregational gatherings, and to distort the teaching of the gospel? All of that, of course, is a concern for the Apostle Paul. And so he tells Titus, you had better be vigilant. Vigilant. As if your life depends upon it, boys and girls, that you watch over the teaching and the lives of God's people. And for the Apostle Paul and throughout the, the scriptures, you see the connection between sound teaching and sound living. It's not as though he's polishing or dusting something of an, antiquity that he's just looking at on a shelf. You know, doctrine sometimes can be treated like that. We, we have all of our theological doctrines in a row. We, we know them. They're rather abstract to us. Paul says, no, none of that. Sound doctrine must always translate into sound living and vice versa. When you corrupt, when you distort, when you compromise truth, you compromise Christian living. And that's why in chapter 2 he addresses, after he's spoken about what kind of men ought to be serving as elders and deacons in the church, he talks about how our various age groups to be addressed. He talks about the older men. The older men, the men who show greater maturity, not only in terms of their, their personhood, but in terms of their faith, they're to be, I love that word, dignified. The older men of our congregation here should be dignified. That is, they conduct themselves in a way that demonstrates they're not involved with trivial, frivolous things. They're people you look up to. They're men that you you seek wisdom from. They will show you from their vast experience what it means to follow Jesus Christ. He says that's what the older men should be. They're, they're reverence. Not that they're somber, not that they have a long face all the time, but, but there's a certain dignity about them. There's not a carelessness about them. And the older women, they have a responsibility as well. They're also to be people of dignity, they are not to be engaged in gossip. And apparently Paul's concern was also about their drinking habits. But in particular, he wants to see the older women training, teaching, modeling the Christian faith to younger women, to the next generation. And sometimes I'm concerned that we've lost that link 
that many of our churches had for many generations through Bible studies or other activities of the, of the word and ministry in our local churches where you would have the older men, the older women mentoring the younger generation, teaching about Christian truth, but specifically teaching about how that truth translates into Christian living. You'll notice what the, the older women are taught or what, are, what they're encouraged to do. They're to teach what is good and to train young women to love their husbands. What do you make of that? I got a secret for you from many years of pastoral experience. Some husbands may be hard to love. I, I know that will come as a complete shock to many of you. But some husbands are harder to love than others. And it takes a great deal of grace and maturity to love a husband well. Somebody asked me recently uh, in the context of prison ministry, what do you do when you have a wife who is more gifted than her husband in terms of, of spiritual gifts? Is she supposed to still be submissive to her husband? Yes, the answer is. And in many ways, her work is that much more difficult because she will have to be patient with a husband who doesn't always get it on the first attempt. And she will have to learn to model the love and patience of Jesus Christ as she loves her husband. Notice what is said of the younger men. What is, what is the common shortcoming, the common downfall of young men? I can ask the young men here. Is it not that they act impulsively? Sort of a knee-jerk response to things or people, situations? They don't think through the consequences. Maybe they let their emotions get the best of them. Maybe they act without thinking first. Am I being too harsh? Paul says the older men are to teach the younger men how to avoid those pitfalls. Slaves are addressed. Slaves are addressed. They're to be faithful. He doesn't even say anything about the fact that the institution of slavery should be condemned, should be abolished. He simply says, under these circumstances, be faithful to your master. Don't pilfer, don't steal from him, in other words. Don't be argumentative. And I love that expression here at the end of verse 10. And we haven't even gotten to our text tonight. I love this expression he says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Do you ever think about that in terms of what you're going to do tomorrow morning when you step outside your home? Paul says you should let the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of God's saving grace in Jesus Christ, be that which adorns you. Is that what adorns you? When you're talking to the boss, when you're talking to your employees when you're talking to your spouse, when you're talking to your children, that the grace of God is what, what adorns you. Well, let's get to our text this evening. How is this possible to do all these things? I mean, maybe this is, a, this is a tall order to fulfill for old and for young alike, for slaves as well as for masters. How is it possible? Notice in verse 11, that word for. And I'm sure you've heard many pastors 
besides myself who have said to you, when you see the word for in the Bible, you ought to ask the question, what is it there for? It links us back to the previous paragraph. How is it possible to live this way? How is it possible to let the gospel adorn your life? For, because the grace of God has appeared. In fact, the word that the Apostle Paul uses in the original Greek is the word that we get epiphany from. It is the appearance of grace. That's how he describes the coming of Jesus Christ, by the way. Not to suggest that there was no grace before the appearance of Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ is the very manifestation in human form of the grace of God, and we have beheld his glory, full of grace and truth, says John in his prologue in John chapter 1. And in the literature of that time, in the ancient world, that word, epiphany, often described the appearance of a hero, a hero who has come to rescue, to sweep us up, to deliver us from that which is oppressing us, that which is holding us in bondage. Paul says to to Titus, teach them that the gospel is a rescue mission, a rescue message. Jesus Christ, through his suffering, death, and resurrection, has delivered us. And there is not simply the matter of our justification, as beautiful and as wonderful as it is, that we are declared righteous in the presence of God. But Paul here wants to emphasize what we call sanctification. That grace means not only has the debt been canceled that you and I have because of our sin, that debt's been canceled, but also now we have been empowered by the Spirit of God. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Again, I don't think what he means here is that every individual has been saved, but understand the categories in which the Apostle Paul is speaking here. He can address young and old, rich and poor, slave and free. He can address Jew and Gentile. All these different classifications of people, he says, have received this grace. It is not... It is not the exclusive possession of one small group. And Paul never tired of talking about that. I mean, wasn't that the burden of much of his message? The gospel of Jesus Christ goes out now to the whole Gentile world so that both Jew and Gentile may be saved. That has been the Lord's plan from the very beginning. But now notice... That grace has appeared and it brings salvation. There's something it does. There's that verbal idea, bringing salvation. But then also, also notice, training us to renounce. The gospel of God's grace teaches us to renounce, to push back, to say no What is renounced? Ungodliness, first of all. Outward behavior. Outward conduct. We will not be squeezed into the world's mold. We will not imitate 
the ungodliness of the world around us in terms of their speech, in terms of their conduct, in terms of the priorities they set for themselves. We are going to be radically different. And that means that rather than going along with the crowd, we're going to say, no, I reject this. But also, not just outward behavior, but notice, worldly passions. So he talks about outward behavior, but also inward desires. What drives you? What motivates you? What is it that fills you with passion? The grace of God does something. It brings about the transformation so that no longer is my heart's craving for that which will not satisfy, as we saw this morning. But I will find perfect peace, perfect contentment, perfect satisfaction in what God has revealed to me regarding his will for my life. If this sounds familiar, it should. This is the language of the Heidelberg Catechism. This is the language of Lord's Day 33. What does, what does conversion consist of? What is daily conversion, which is the mark of the Christian life? What does it consist of? And the Catechism, reflecting the teaching of Scripture, says it consists of two parts. The dying away of the old man of sin. The technical term is what? Mortification. It means that you hate your sin more and more, says the catechism. You hate it. You flee from it. It is no longer a friend to you. I can't help but think of what I've been teaching this summer at the Indiana State Prison. We're teaching a class on ancient and medieval church history, and then I also assigned our students there to read St. Augustine's Confessions, a book which every Christian ought to read at least once before they die. It is the account of his first 32 years of life leading up to his conversion at the age of 30. He was very perceptive, Augustine was, in terms of understanding the way in which sin appeals to people as it appealed to his own heart. Right before he gets to the very climax of that story in book eight, he talks about the inner struggle that he faces, where, as it were, sin speaks to him with that voice and says, are you ready to give us up forever? Are you ready to depart from us and say, I'll never see you again? I'll never hold you close to me again? Are you ready to do that? Are you willing to do that? which reminds me again of something I have seen in my own life, something I've seen as a pastor and now as a teacher in prison. The problem is that we love our sins too much to let them go. It's not that we're ignorant, by and large, of our sin. Sometimes we are, but many times we're not. It's that we don't quite want to give them up. We don't want to renounce them. We don't want to put them to death because we're not quite convinced that life is better otherwise. And Augustine had to learn by God's grace that purity in his life, and for him it was particularly sexual purity, was far more satisfying, far more God-glorifying than giving into his temptations. That's how you fight fire with fire, as one pastor put it. 
You don't simply say no, no, no to certain things. You must also say, but there are things that are much better than what sin has to offer. And you must be convinced in your own mind of that very thing. Otherwise, you will make very limited progress in the Christian life. Jesus said what? If need be, you pluck out an eye. If need be, you lop off a hand. Sounds sort of radical, doesn't it? Sounds radical, doesn't it? But what he's saying is, you and I must be ruthless in dealing with our sin. The grace of God is what enables us to be ruthless. Because the grace of God shows us something better. And then positively, notice in verse 12, the grace of God teaches us to live or trains us to live. What? Self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Self-controlled. We are not enslaved to selfish, sinful desires. We live for the glory of God. Upright, meaning what marks our life is not lawlessness, not indifference towards obedience, but righteousness. That's what Psalm 25 spoke about as well tonight. And then godly lives, where you and I depend upon God. We live for God. We love God. That's the present. Renounce and to live. Again, think of what the catechism says about the Christian life. There is the putting away, the dying of the old self, but there's also the coming to life. We call that vivification. Coming to life of the new man in Jesus Christ. And the catechism says in Lord's Day 33, what is the coming to life? It is wholehearted joy in Christ. I love that answer. That is such a beautiful answer. It's more than simply saying, I can confess these things to be true and biblical and right. It is joy. That God creates in me that joy, which as Jesus described, is like the man who finds the treasure in the field and for the joy of having discovered it, he's willing to sell all that he has to take possession of it. It's that precious to him. That's the coming to life of the new man. And it is a desire to do everything that is pleasing to God. That's the present. And now the future, verse 13. And so what do we do now? What are we waiting for? What are we anticipating? We are waiting for our blessed hope or the hope that brings blessing, whatever way you want to put that. And what is that? What is it we're longing for? You think again of how how unsatisfying and how trivial are the things that we so often focus our attention on for the future. Our favorite sports team winning the championship, retiring at a certain age, having the the perfect vacation home, retirement home. But here, the blessed hope that we wait for is the appearing 
of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Did you notice the language here in verse 13? If you ever get in discussion with anyone who doubts the fact that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, very God of very God, the next time a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and wants to talk about it, what a great passage. Jesus is described as our great God and Savior. And what did he do? Paul gives it in a very short, succinct statement. He gave himself. He offered himself as an atoning sacrifice for sin. He laid down his life. He gave up his prerogatives. He did not count equality with the Father something to be exploited for personal gain, but rather he made himself obedient to the point of death, says Paul in Philippians 2. That's what he did for you. And why? For what end? For what purpose? Notice verse 14. To redeem us. Boys and girls, that means to buy us back. It's the language that was used in the ancient world of paying the price to liberate a slave. What was called the price of manumission. You're free. You're free now. You're no longer under the bondage of another. And what did he free us from? All lawlessness. He didn't free us simply to live as we please. He did not free us simply to go our own way. He frees us in order that we may live within the the safety and the boundaries of his will, his law. Think of how the Lord presents the law at Mount Sinai. The introduction is what? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. I've taken you out of slavery. Now this is how you live. This is how you experience real freedom. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And also, again, notice the verb, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That has the echo of Exodus 19, where the Lord, after he rescues them from from the Red Sea, he says what? You are to be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You are to be my treasured possession. A people for his own possessions. That's what you are. That's your identity. Your identity is you belong not to yourself, but to a faithful Savior. And what is the mark of those people who belong to Jesus Christ? He says they are zealous for good works. They are on fire, boys and girls, for good works. They are passionate about them. It is their life's devotion to live a life that pleases God. Not in the sense of somehow earning God's favor, making their way into the kingdom of heaven by way of their own merits. No. It is, as the catechism says over and over again, it is the expression of humble gratitude. It is the expression of what God has intended for us all along. Again, I want you to think of the language here of verse 10. Your life is to adorn, to be adorned by the doctrine of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
one of my students likes to refer to the Christian life as a billboard. Our lives are like a billboard. And he has sometimes said to the men in, in chapel, what is the billboard of your life saying? What is it advertising? I can't imagine a more beautiful thing to advertise than the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared in my life. The grace of God has been made available to all categories of people. I don't care what your past is. I don't care what you did in the past. I don't care how rich or how poor. I don't care what ethnic group you come from. The grace of God has appeared for you. I want to close with this challenge from a little book by Kevin DeYoung called The Hole in Our Holiness. At the beginning of the book, he asks this question. He says, is it possible that with all the positive signs of spiritual life in your church or in your heart, there is still a sad disregard for your own personal holiness? When was the last time we took a verse like, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving? And even began to try to apply this to our conversation, our movies, our YouTube clips, our television and commercial intake. What does it mean that there must not even be a hint of immorality among us as saints? It must mean something, he says. In our sex-saturated culture, I would be surprised if there were not at least a few hints of immorality in our texts and tweets and inside jokes And what about our clothes, our music, our flirting, and the way we talk about people who aren't in a room? If the war on poverty is worth fighting for, how much more the war on your own sin? The fact of the matter is, if you read through the instructions to the New Testament churches, you will find few explicit commands that tell us to take care of the needy in our communities and no explicit commands to do creative creation care. But there are dozens and dozens of verses that enjoin us in one way or another to be holy as the Lord is holy. And so, brothers and sisters, tonight, what does the grace of God do in your life? The grace of God enables. It enables a heart that formerly did not long after God to be passionate about God. The grace of God teaches us. It teaches you and me to put off that which is offensive to God and to embrace wholeheartedly that which pleases God. And the grace of God enables us to anticipate the coming of our Lord and Savior in glory. And while we're doing that, we are zealous for good works. May the Lord bless this to our hearts. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we pray that the gospel of grace, the transformative grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ would be that which adorns our lives. It would be the billboard of our lives. And so create in us the heart that loves you above all else and loves our neighbor as ourselves a heart that renounces that which is displeasing to you, and a heart that looks forward to the day when Jesus Christ shall be all in all.
Teach us, Father, by your Spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen.